Okay, the second, the second Bible reading tonight is from the book of Deuteronomy, and in the Pew Bible I've got, it's on page 177. Uh, I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting at verse 1, or you can follow along on the screen. And I'm reading to the end of verse 21. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honour your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbour's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. This is the word of the Lord. David Gordon had received a poor prognosis the spot that the specialist found on his bowel was an inoperable bowel tumour. He was given months to live and he was sent home to get his affairs in order. As he thought about this, he thought as a Christian man he would only have the opportunity of dying once and therefore he wanted to do it well. He thought he would write a book. He thought about the things which really concerned him about the state of the church in the United States. And the thing which concerned him most was, in his opinion, the very poor state of preaching in the United States church. And so he wrote a book called Why Johnny Can't Preach. 
When you read that book, Why Johnny Can't Preach, you realise it's written with a degree of anger and a man who doesn't mind about making enemies and therefore he's really speaking what his heart is concerned about. As far as I know, David Gordon is still living and uh, he's written another book. And he thought, well, since I'm still living, I'll write the book about what I set, the second issue that really concerns me, and that is the state of singing in the United States Church. And if you think that Why Johnny Can't Preach was an angry book, you wait till you read Why Johnny Can't Sing. And it is blisteringly angry, as a man in his mid-60s writes about music in the church today, as you can imagine. In Why Johnny Can't Preach, this is what David Gordon says. We must never divorce ethical exhortation from its redemptive environment. I'll say that again. We must never divorce ethical exhortation from its redemptive environment. In other words, as a preacher or as a Christian, I must never tell a person what to do without telling them why they should do it. And the reason why they should do it is always found in the redemptive work of God in the gospel itself. Now, if you have your Bibles open there uh, at Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're going to look at this tonight. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 6, we come, Deuteronomy means second reading, and this is the second reading of the law. The first revelation of the law to God's people was in Exodus chapter 20, when the people had just come out of of Egypt. But now, as you know, they refuse to go into the land and a journey which should have taken 11 days through the wilderness actually takes them 40 years. And now they are on the cusp of entering into the land again and Moses tells the new generation of God's covenant with them. Now look at verses 3 and 4 of Deuteronomy 5. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face, face out of the fire on the mountain. Now, he didn't want them to lose the wonder of that. If you flip back one page to chapter 4, verse 32, he says in chapter 4, verse 32, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? Now notice that here Moses is saying this is a great privilege for you as you go into the land to realise that you are in covenant relationship with God who is the creator And he has given you the moral direction of your life. Elsewhere, you remember how the Apostle Paul says, what advantage is there in being a Jew in Romans 3? He says there are many advantages of being a Jew, and he names just one of them. They were the first to receive the very words of God. And here Moses says, you are receiving the moral instruction of God. Here is ethical exhortation, but I want you to look at verse 6, because verse 6 is key. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So God just doesn't give them the Ten Commandments. He puts the Ten Commandments into the redemptive environment. I'm the God who has saved you. This is how you should live. Notice, God does not say, I will save you if you live this way. 
The opening door to the Ten Commandments is the statement, both here and in Exodus chapter 20, I remind you that I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you, therefore. It's not I will redeem you if, but it is I have redeemed you, therefore. This is the way you are to live. And there follow in verse 7 to 21, the Ten Commandments. Notice the first four of those commandments in verse 7 to 15 deal with our reverence for God and the latter six deal with our reverence for our neighbour and the bridge between the two is the fourth commandment which is the longest of the commandments. Let's just look at these briefly. It's good for us to remind ourselves of the moral order that God gave to his people. Look at verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh is God alone. There are to be no substitutes. You are to be distinct in your loyalty to him. Verse 8, any visible representation of God is forbidden because a visual representation of God is by nature reductionistic and you cannot reduce God and God cannot be reproduced. Remember that we have been made in his image. We do not make him in our image. Verse 11. Have reverence for the person and character. Honour the name of God, for he is a jealous God. Now remember, in deaf language, in sign language, you may know the sign for jealousy is to grit your teeth and to take your little finger and screw your little finger into your teeth. The idea of jealousy of But God never refers to himself as jealous of, he is jealous for. He is jealous for the affection. He is jealous for the honour. He is jealous for the loyalty of his people. So reverence my name because I'm the God who's redeemed you. I'm the God who is in covenant with you. And then have a look at verses 12 to 15. This is the longest commandment and this is the bridge between reverence for God and love of neighbour. It's interesting that in Exodus chapter 20, the fourth commandment says that we are to remember the Sabbath day. Here we are told in verse 12 that we are to observe the Sabbath day. In Exodus, the reason we are to remember the Sabbath day is because we are remembering God's creative activity and that he rested on the Sabbath day. That was the goal of his creative work. Not that God needed to take a rest because he was tired, know that everything he was doing was to establish a rest for himself and his people. And the Sabbath day was a taste of the eternal rest of God. Now notice here in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy the reason that we, uh, we are to observe here the Sabbath day. And what are we observing and remembering? Look down to verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now you've got to remember, therefore, that you were redeemed. A slave, for a slave, there was never a day off. For a slave, it was never a 40-hour week. A slave, there was never a rest. And so you are to observe the Sabbath day because you realise the Sabbath day is a great privilege. It's indicative of the fact that you are no longer slaves, that you have time off that God has redeemed you from slavery and so therefore observe that Sabbath day because it is a reminder of the freedom which you have because of the redemptive activity of God. Now, how is this a bridge to the, uh, to the, to the love of neighbour? It is interesting, isn't it, that when we proceed in Deuteronomy, this system or pattern of one in seven also 
is to duplicate itself in its, our economic relationships. Every seventh year, you are to cancel your debts. You are to have sabbatical years. Every seventh year, your slaves are to be offered their freedom. One in seven. Because one in seven, one day in seven, one year in seven reminds us that we are people who have been set free. Freedom is a great character. Freedom is a great blessing which we have because of the redemptive activity of God. Now look at verse 16 to 20. The first love of neighbour, the first neighbour we meet are our mum and dad, our parents, and we are to honour your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? Because, of course, Israel, micro-Israel, is the family. The people of God are broken down into family units. And Malachi says that if Israel is to be renewed, it must be renewed through the eating tables of the people. God will renew Israel by renewing the family. And of course, it's through the breakdown of family that our nation will fall apart. Last year, I was in Great Britain for four days, for four, for four months. And one night I was listening to the radio and I was listening to just a very conservative social commentator and he said to the interviewer on BBC Radio, he said, of course, we are seeing the breakdown of our society here in Great Britain right now, the crumbling of our society. Oh, in what way? Well, the average child who goes to school in England today, in Great Britain today, by the time they are 16, the vast majority of those children will no longer be living with their birth parents. They'll be living invariably with their birth mother alone and the father is gone. That following Sunday, I went to church in England and it was Father's Day and I met a man whose name was Tim. He was about my age. He was working as a teacher in a disadvantaged high school in London. I said, what is the nature of the disadvantage? He said, the nature of the disadvantage in my high school is that almost every child in the school is living in a single parent family and generally with their mother alone. Their fathers have disappeared. In fact, he said on Friday, it was the day before Father's Day and I got seven Father's Day cards because I was the most meaningful male figure in their life. Now, honour your father and your mother. When Ronald Conway wrote his little book, The Land of the Long Weekend, which attracted me because I thought that's a perfect definition of Australia, the land of the long weekend, he said, that the Australian society is the magna mater society. It is probably the most female-dominated society on earth in which the husband in the family roams on the perimeter of the household, something like his wife's eldest son. Now, that is a blaming, uh, uh, an indictment of husbands and fathers, and we need to take the lead. Husbands and fathers need to take the initiative. But notice what is said here, that children are said that they are to honour their father and mother. They are to learn respect for the first authority figure they find in their life. I think this is terribly important. For 26 years, I was the principal of the Sydney Missionary and Bible College. Invariably, young people came to talk about their future. Some came to talk about who they would marry. Others came to talk about where they would go in ministry. And I would say, what do your parents think? And very often that was, oh, I hadn't thought to ask. 
What do you mean you hadn't thought to ask? Your parents who love you, honour your father and mother. What does that look like for you as a Christian person, even now today? What does that look like for you that God says to his people, learn to respect authority and learn to respect your father and mother? Verse 17, you shall not murder. Verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 19, you shall not steal. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Oh, Mr. Negative. He's prime minister now, isn't he? But of course, Mr. Negative, if you're going to say no, then it's just a way of saying, oh yes, but I say yes to this. Why is this so negative? You shall not murder because you shall respect the body. The life of your neighbour. You shall respect the life of your neighbour. Verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. You shall respect the body of your neighbour. You shall not steal. You shall respect the goods of your neighbour. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall respect the reputation of your neighbour and not slander them. And you shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his house or his land or his manservant or his maidservant. In other words, you shall respect yourself. You were not made to be a consumer alone, running around looking for fulfilment and contentment in things and envying your neighbour as a greedy consumer would. In other words, all of these are positive directions for you to respect your neighbour's life, your neighbour's body, your neighbour's goods, your neighbour's reputation and to respect yourself as one who is made in the image of God. Well, there, brothers and sisters, is a succinct summary. And I want to apply this in two ways and then ask one question and then I will sit down. Number one, the first application of this truth is that these issues are the fruit, not the root, of redemption. This is not the foundation of my right relationship with God. It is not the root, but it is rather the the fruit of my right relationship with God. What did David Gordon say? Ethical exhortation must never be divorced, separated from its redemptive environment. That's what it's about. A friend of mine says that every time he drives over a very prominent bridge in Sydney, the Anzac Bridge, there's a series of six large wheat silos. He said that if he had the money, he'd love to put on those wheat silos for the cars that go past every day, the Ten Commandments. I said, well, why would you put the Ten Commandments there? I said, people need moral order. Well, that's true. But if you place the Ten Commandments there, it's only a source of frustration to me because I simply cannot do them. Why wouldn't you, therefore, place there a statement, a clear statement of God's love in Christ, a clear statement of the Lordship of Jesus, a clear statement of the gospel. The gospel always comes before morality. Now, as you can see, I go to a gymnasium in Sydney. Why are they laughing, Chris? And in my gymnasium, it's a very small gymnasium. It's about the size of this area here. And it's run by a Roman Catholic. And the other three men who get there very early in the morning are all Roman Catholics too. They've become my best friends, I think. We are very good friends and, they're all, and I know they like me because they're always being rude to me and having a go at me and that's the way the Australians show their affection. I was giving a lecture and I said, why don't you come and listen to the lecture? And one night, one of them did come and listen to the lecture 
and I was talking about the Ten Commandments. And the next morning, one of them over coffee, because we spent an hour in the gym and then spent a couple of hours in the coffee shop just to work (laughs) off the gym, and I said, how did you find the lecture last night? He said, I thought it was brilliant. What did you find brilliant about it? He said, when you said two comes before three. Well, isn't that fairly obvious? Two comes before three. Flip back here to Exodus chapter 20 and see why that is a very big breakthrough for a Roman Catholic person in their thinking. Exodus chapter 20 is the first statement of the Ten Commandments and notice that verse 2 comes before verse 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, verse 2, Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you see? God says, I have redeemed you, therefore live this way. He does not say, if you live this way, I will redeem you. That's a very big breakthrough. And so the first thing I want to say about these Ten Commandments is that they are the fruit of redemption, they are the fruit of God's activity in the Old Covenant, and they are not the foundation or the root of God's activity. Verse 6 always comes before verse 7. The second thing I want to say is this. James talks about these Ten Commandments as the perfect law which gives freedom. What does he mean by that? He means that we are most truly human when we live like this. God the creator who knows us best is not a killjoy and he is showing us the best way to live. Now, if you've got your finger there in Deuteronomy 5, just look at Deuteronomy 6. And look at what verse 2 says. So that you, your children, and their children after them, they fear the Lord of God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy a long life. God is saying this is conducive to long life to live this way. Verse 3, hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you. And you may increase greatly in the land. This is good for you. Chapter 6, verse 18. Do what is right and good, verse 18, in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you. And you may go in and take over the land. Verse 24. The Lord commanded us to obey these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. This is good for you. My wife and I have five children. Our youngest is 27. He lives in Hollywood. He is an actor. The last time he went back to Hollywood, he was in the car with me, alone, on the way to the airport. Do you have any advice for me? To write, I've got advice for you. Read your Bible every day. Even if you can only read for five minutes, read it in this proportion. One minute reading, four minutes thinking about what you've read. Don't just rush through. One minute to read, four minutes to think. Two minutes to read, eight minutes to think. Good, where should I start? Start in Proverbs, that's a good way to start. That's a good place for you to start. And I remind you, Luke, that when you are reading the Bible... Remembering, remember that what God is telling you is not, he's not telling you this to cramp your style. He's telling you this because it's for your own good. 
God knows the way you are made. God will have a holy people. He is holy. He knows what holiness is all about. And in his word, he tells us what the good life is all about. And when you live this way, you will never have to blush. But remember that this is all the fruit of redemption. But it is the perfect law. And it is descriptive of our true humanity. Do these things and you will never need to blush. Two points of application. Now, one pastorally loaded question. What do the Ten Commandments have to do for you and me? And I want to answer that question by saying absolutely nothing. What do the Ten Commandments have to do for you and me? Absolutely nothing. Full stop. I've seen far too many Christian congregations in which people think that they are right with God by trusting in Jesus and keeping his commands. It is perfectly good Roman Catholic doctrine, but there is never assurance there because you can never be sure that you've kept his commands sufficiently well and therefore there is no good news there. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said the law imprisoned us. We couldn't do it. It was preparing us for the coming of Christ. And in Romans 10, you remember that the Apostle Paul said that the law's goal was it was pointing forward to Jesus. And the problem with Israel is that it came to the law and treated the law like it was an end in itself. Instead of pointing away to the goal of Christ, the, the law somehow attracted Israel's attention to itself. And they thought if we can only do the law, we'll be right with God and you can never do the law. The Lord Jesus came, as you'll see next week in Matthew chapter 5, not to abolish the law. He doesn't abolish it, but he does fulfill the law. And the rule now for you as a Christian person is not the law for your living. Paul said in that reading from Colossians 2, don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink or by religious festivals or Sabbath days. They are a shadow of the reality. The reality is Christ. And the Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 15, why do we impose on the Gentiles a yoke, the yoke of the law, that we neither we nor our fathers could bear? Christ has cancelled the law's condemnation against us by fulfilling the law. We say, well, isn't the law therefore good for our ethical direction? Paul says in Romans 6, we are not under law, but under grace. The law is good, it's from God. But it's as though it's an old spouse, it's dead, and we are now free to remarry in the new way of the Spirit. So you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, when we have Moses and Elijah and Jesus, who does God the Father say we are to listen to? Not to Moses, not to Elijah. This is my son, the Lord Jesus. Listen to him. And so one of the early Christians, Oregon, I think, summed it up best, and he said this, Those who belong to the Catholic Church do not reject the law of Moses. We welcome the law of Moses, provided it is read to us by Jesus. We welcome the law of Moses, provided it is the Lord Jesus who reads it to us. In 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul says, To those under the law, I became like one under the law. To the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the Gentile, I became like a Gentile. 
To those under the law, I became like one under the law that I might win them. Though I am not under the law, though he says I am under the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? He tells us in Galatians chapter 6 verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let Jesus read the law to us. And what Jesus says to me is this, I have perfectly fulfilled that law on your behalf. It can no longer condemn you. I've died to pay the penalty of broken law. There is no now no, no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I have redeemed you by my blood. I've done it. I haven't done it if you do the law. I have done it full stop. Well, how am I to live? Well, there are the ethical exhortations in the New Testament. That's how you to live. In the power of the Holy Spirit, allow him to lead you in your battle against the world, the flesh and the devil. But you live according to the ethical exhortations of the New Testament. That's how the fruit of your redemption shows itself. In Sydney, we had an evangelist by the name of Frank Jenner. Every lunchtime, he would go out into George Street, Sydney, which is one of our major thoroughfares, and he would ask 10 people every lunchtime for 36 years one question. Say, excuse me, sir, excuse me, madam, could I just ask you one question? I won't interrupt you too much. If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? I'll leave you to ponder your response to that question. It's a very good question. A man by the name of Raymond Wilson wrote a biography of the life of Frank Jenner. And he tells about after Jenner's death, he goes into Martin Place in Sydney and he asks people that same question. Excuse me, could I ask you, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? And he said he saw a young man coming towards him and he asked him that question and he said, young man, could I ask you, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? And the young man said, oh, I'm on fire for Jesus. I'm living for him. I love the Lord Jesus more than anything. And then this is what Wilson said, but then I noticed that he had some pierced rings through his pierced eyebrows. And I said to him, don't you know that the book of Deuteronomy does not allow you to pierce your skin or to tattoo your skin? And I see you've got a tattoo on your forearm. That's not the book of Deuteronomy at all, actually. It's the book of Leviticus. But I said, how sad. This man is saying this as though we should be approving of it. How do we take new covenant believers and take them back under the old covenant? On what basis do we do that? As though the old covenant is still on duty? No, it's not. Christ has fulfilled it. He set us free. Not to be free in the sense of living without any moral order, but the new covenant tells us how we are to live. This is a pastorally loaded issue. You're right with God because of the work of the Lord Jesus, full stop. And when you die, you will die with the name of Jesus on your lips alone. Not Jesus plus my obedience. Not Jesus plus my ordination. Jesus only. Full stop. You say, well, now wait on. How does this apply, say, to the Sabbath law? Let's just take that one law. Look at it there in Deuteronomy 5. It's a very long law. Verse 12 through to verse 15. 
What is the Sabbath law all about? Because I can see that every other law in the Ten Commandments is taken up by the New Covenant and is applied afresh. But this one's not. So what's going on here? The Sabbath law is a reminder to us that the goal of all God's work is our rest and we lose out on rest because of our rebellion against God. A friend of mine is writing a book on the whole of the Old Testament and he's calling it Longings. Our longings to find the rest that God created us for. The Lord Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So what does this Sabbath law mean? Just as Joshua led the people into the land and the Lord Jesus comes. Remember, Joshua is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus and the Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua. Jesus is the new Joshua who leads his people into the promised land of heaven and sees our eternal rest and our longings for rest fulfilled. The Sabbath is a shadow of the rest which we have now eternally in Jesus. So Martin Luther said, abolish the Sabbath to show that the Sabbath was given to Jews only. For the new covenant believer, every day is equally holy. And so Paul says, don't judge one another by days. Jesus is the Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it doesn't come by earning but by trusting in him. My friend, I ask you, where is your trust tonight? Is it wholeheartedly in Jesus or is it in Jesus plus? There's a wonderful, wonderful hymn and it goes like this. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary, And worn and sad, I found in him my resting place, and he has made me glad. All of these ten point forward to the Lord Jesus. He has fulfilled them, but particularly the Sabbath rest reminds us that when you come to Christ, you find the rest, the eternal rest that you have been longing for. Well, there it is, the second reading. Love God. And love your neighbour. Do this as the fruit, not the root, of your redemption that is in Christ. Having come to Christ now and being forgiven of your sin, now in the power of the Holy Spirit, live consistently in freedom with the ethical exhortations of the New Testament. Well, let's pray.